59. Mend of the future subscription of tens. Per month until every member had in like manner obtained in advance upon his shares, or accumulated the L120 per share, as L60 is not of itself enough to buy a house, even of the most modest kind, every member desirous of using the society for its original purpose of obtaining a dwelling house by its means would require to take more than one share. The Act of 1836 limited the amount of each share to L150, and the amount of the monthly contributions on each share to L1 but did not limit the number of shares a member might hold. The earlier formed societies in London at least did not usually adopt the title, Building Society, or they added to it some further descriptive title, as, Accumulating Fund, Savings Fund, or, Investment Association. Several are described as, Societies for Obtaining Freehold Property, or simply as, Mutual Associations, or, Societies of Equality. The building societies in Scotland are mostly called property investment, or economic, although the term benefit building society occurs in the title to the Act of 1836. It was not till 1849 that it became in England the sole distinctive name of these societies, and it cannot be said to be a happy description of them, for as ordinarily constituted they undertake no building operations whatever and merely advance money to their members to enable them to build or to buy dwelling houses or land. The name, Building Society, too, leaves wholly out of sight the important functions these societies fulfill as means of investment of small savings. The Act of 1836 defined them as societies to enable every member to receive the amount or value of a share or shares to erect or purchase a dwelling house, and see, but a member who did not desire to erect or purchase a dwelling house might still receive out of the funds of the society the amount or value of his shares improved by the payments of interest made by those to whom shares had been advanced. About 1846 an important modification of the system of these societies was introduced, by the invention of the permanent plan, which was adopted by a great number of the societies established after that date. It was seen that these societies really consist of two classes of members, that those who do not care to have, or have not yet received, an advance upon mortgage security are mere investors and that it matters little when they commence investing, or to a lot amount, while those to whom advances have been made are really debtors to the society, and arrangements for enabling them to pay off their debt in various terms of years, according to their convenience, would be of advantage both to themselves and the society, by permitting members to enter at any time without back payment, and by granting advances for any term of years agreed upon, a continuous inflow of funds, and a continuous means of profitable investment of them, would be secured. The interest of each member in the society would terminate when his share was realized, or his advance paid off. But the society would continue with the accruing subscriptions of other members employed in making other advances. Under the system building societies largely increased and developed. The Royal Commissioners who inquired into the subject in 1872 estimated the total assets of the societies in 1870 at 17 millions and their annual income at 11 millions, the more complete returns, afterwards obtained, indicate that this was an underestimate. A variety of the terminating class of societies met at one time with considerable favor under the name of Starbucket, or Mutual, Societies, of which more than a thousand were established. They differed from the typical society above described, in the contribution of a member who had not received in advance being much smaller, while the amount of the advance was much larger and it was made without any calculation of interest. Thus a society issued, say, 500 shares, 
on which the contributions were to be 1s, 3d, per week, and, as soon as a sum of L300 accumulated allotted it by ballot to one of the shareholders, on condition that he was to repay it without interest by installments in 10 or 121 to years, and at the same time to keep up his share contributions, the fortunate recipient of the appropriation was at liberty to sell it, and frequently did so at a profit, but except from fines no profit whatever was earned by those who did not succeed in getting an appropriation, and as the number of members successful in the ballot must necessarily be small in the earlier years of the society, the others frequently became discontented and retired, these societies could not borrow money, for as they received no interest they could not pay any, the plan was afterwards modified by granting the appropriations alternately by ballot and sale, so that by the premiums paid on the sales which are the same in effect as payments of interest on the amount actually advanced profits might be earned for the investing members. The formation of societies of this class ceased on the passing of the Act of 1894, by which balloting for advances was prohibited in societies thereafter established. A further modification of the mutual plan was to make all the appropriations by sale. The effect of this was to bring the mutual society back to the ordinary form for it amounts to precisely the same thing for a man to pay tens, a month on a loan of L60 for 14 years, as for him to borrow a nominal sum of L84 for the same period, repayable in the same manner, but to allow L24 off the loan as a bidding at the sale. The only difference between the two classes of societies is that the interest which the member pays who bids for his advance depends on the amount of competition at the bidding, and is not fixed by a rule of the society. For several years the progress of building societies in general was steady, but there were not wanting signs that their prosperity was unsubstantial. A practice of receiving deposits repayable at call had sprung up, which must lead to embarrassment where the funds are invested in loans repayable during a long term of years. It was surmised, if not actually known, that many societies had large amounts of property on their hands which had been reduced into possession in consequence of the default of borrowers in paying their installments. A practice had also grown up of establishing mushroom societies, which did little more than pay fees to the promoters. The vicious system of trafficking in advances that had been awarded by ballot, near akin to gambling, prevailed in many societies. These signs of weakness had been observed by the well-informed and the disastrous failure of a large society incorporated under V.04P.0713 the Act of 1874, the Liberator, which had in fact long ceased to do any genuine building society business, hastened the crisis. This society had drawn funds to the amount of more than a million sterling from provident people in all classes of the population and all parts of the country by specious representations, and had applied those funds not to the legitimate purpose of a building society but to the support of other undertakings in which the same persons were concerned who were the active managers of the society. The consequence was that the whole group of concerns became insolvent October 1892, and the liberator depositors and shareholders were defrauded of every penny of their investments. Many of them suffered great distress from the loss of their savings, and some were absolutely ruined. The result was to awaken confidence in building societies generally and this was very marked in the rapid decline of the amount of the capital of the incorporated building societies. From its highest point nearly 54 millions reached in 1887, it fell to below 43 millions in 1895. On some societies, which had adopted the deposit system, a run was made, and several were unable to stand it. 
The Birkbeck Society was for today's besieged by an anxious crowd of depositors clamoring to withdraw their money, but luckily for that society, and for the building societies generally, a very large portion of its funds was invested in easily convertible securities, and it was enabled by that means to get sufficient assistance from the Bank of England to pay without a moment's hesitation every depositor who asked for his money. Its credit was so firmly established by this means that many persons sought to pay money in. Had this very large society succumbed, the results would have been disastrous to the whole body of building societies. As the case stood, the energetic means it adopted to save its own credit reacted in favor of the societies generally. The Liberator disaster convinced everybody that something must be done towards avoiding such calamities in the future. The government of the day brought in a bill for that purpose and several private members also prepared measures most of them more stringent than the government bill. All the bills were referred to a select committee, of which Mr. Herbert Gladstone was the chairman. As the result of the deliberations of the committee, the Building Societies Act of 1894 was passed. Meanwhile the Rutan, W.L. Jackson afterwards Lord Allerton, a member of the committee, moved for an address to the Crown for a return of the property held in possession by building societies. This was the first time such a return had been called for, and the managers of the societies much resented it, there were no means of enforcing the return, and the consequence was that many large societies failed to make it, notwithstanding frequent applications by the registrar. The Act provided that henceforth all incorporated societies should furnish returns in a prescribed form, including schedules showing respectively the mortgages for amounts exceeding L5000 the properties of which the societies had taken possession for more than 12 months through default of the mortgagers, and the mortgages which were more than 12 months in arrear of repayment subscription. The Act did not come into operation till the 1st of January 1895, and the first complete return under it was not due till 1896, when it appeared that the properties in possession at the time of Mr. Jackson's return must have been counted for at least seven and a half millions in the assets of the societies. In a few years after the passing of the Act the societies reduced their properties in possession from 14 of the whole of the mortgages to 5, or, in other words, reduced them to one-third of the original amount, from 71 to millions to 21 to millions, though this operation must have been attended with some sacrifice in many societies. Upon the whole the balance of profit has increased rather than diminished. Thus this provision of the Act, though it greatly alarmed the managers of societies, was really a blessing in disguise. The Act also gave power to the Registrar, upon the application of ten members, to order an inspection of the books of a society, but it did not confer upon individual members the right to inspect the books, which would have been more effective. It empowered the Registrar, upon the application of one-fifth of the members, to order an inspection upon oath into the affairs of a society, or to investigate its affairs with a view to dissolution and even in certain cases to proceed without an application from members. It gave him ample powers to deal with a society which upon such investigation proved to be insolvent, and these were exercised so as to procure the cheap and speedy dissolution of such societies. It also prohibited the future establishment of societies making advances by ballot, or dependent on any chance or lot, and provided an easy method by which existing societies could discontinue the practice of balloting. This method has been adopted in a few instances only. The Act, or the circumstances which led to it, has greatly diminished the number of new societies applying for registry, 
The statistics of building societies belonging to all the three classes mentioned show that there were on the 31st of December 1904, 2118 societies in existence in the United Kingdom. Of these, 2075, having 609.785 members, made returns. Their gross receipts for the financial year were L38.729.009, and the amount advanced on mortgage during the year was L9.589.864. The capital belonging to their members was L39.408.430, and the undivided balance of profit L4.004.547. Their liabilities to depositors and other creditors were L24.838.290. To meet this they had mortgages on which L53.196.112 was due. But of this L2.443.255 was on properties which had been in possession more than a year. And L222.444 on mortgages which had fallen into arrear more than a year. Their other assets were L14.952.485, and certain societies showed a deficit balance which in the aggregate was L100.670, as compared with 1895, when first returns were obtained from an incorporated societies. These figures show an increase in income of 30, in assets of 23, and in profit balances of 46 and a diminution of the properties in possession and mortgages in arrear of 14 in the nine years. The total assets and income are more than three times the amount of the conjectural estimate made for 1870 by the Royal Commission. It is not too much to say that a quarter of a million persons have been enabled by means of building societies to become the proprietors of their own homes. In recent years, several rivals to building societies have sprung up. Friendly societies have largely taken to investing their surplus funds in loans to members on the building society principle. Industrial and provident land and building societies have been formed. The legislature has authorized local authorities to lend money to the working classes to enable them to buy their dwelling houses. Bond and investment companies have been formed under the Companies Acts, and are under no restriction as to balloting for appropriation. All these have not yet had any perceptible effect in checking the growth of the building society movement, and it is not thought that they will permanently do so. British Colonies In several of the British colonies, legislation similar to that of the mother country has been adopted. In Victoria, Australia, a crisis occurred, in which many building societies suffered severely. In the other Australian colonies the building society movement has made progress, but not to a very large extent. In the Dominion of Canada these societies are sometimes called loan companies and are not restricted in their investments to loans on real estates, but about 90 of their advances are on that security. At the close of the year 1904 their liabilities to stockholders exceeded L13.000.000 and to the public L21.000.000. The uncalled capital was L5.000.000. The balance of current loans was L28.000.000, and the property owned by the societies exceeded L7.000.000. Belgium, and C. In Belgium, the government savings bank has power to make advances of money to societies of credit or of construction to enable their members to become owners of dwelling houses. The advance is made to the society at 3 or sometimes at 21 to interest, and the borrower pays for. In the great majority of cases the borrower effects an insurance with the savings bank so that his repayments terminate at his death. 
on the 31st of December 1903 nearly 25.000 advances were in course of repayment, in Germany, building societies are recognized as a form of societies for self-help, but are not many in number, being overshadowed by the great organization of credit societies founded by Schulze de Litsch. In other countries there has been no special legislation for building societies similar to that of the United Kingdom, and though societies with the same special object probably exist, separate information with regard to them is not available. EWB United States Building and Loan Association is a general term applied in the United States to such institutions as mutual loan associations, homestead aid associations, savings fund and loan associations, company operative banks, company operative savings and loan associations, and C. They are private corporations, for the accumulation of savings, and for the loaning of money to build homes. The first association of this kind in the United States of which there is any record was organized at Frankfurt, a suburb V.04P.0714 of Philadelphia, on the 3rd of January 1831, under the title of the Oxford Provident Building Association. Their permanent inception took place between 1840 and 1850. The receipts or capital of the building and loan association consists of periodical payments by the members, interest and premiums paid by borrowing members or others, fixed periodical installments by borrowing members, fines for failures to pay such fixed installments, forfeitures, fees for transferring stock, entrance fees, and any other revenues or payments, all of which go into the common treasury. When the installment payments and profits of all kinds equal the face value of all the shares issued, the assets, over and above expenses and losses, are apportioned among members, and this apportionment cancels the borrower's debt, while the non-borrower is given the amount of his stock. A man who wishes to borrow, let us say, 1,000 for the erection of a house ordinarily takes five shares in an association, each of which, when he has paid all the successive installments on it, will be worth 200 and he must offer suitable security for his loan. Usually the lot on which he is to build, the money is not lent to him at regular rates of interest, as in the case of a savings bank or other financial institution, but is put up at auction usually in open meeting at the time of the payment of dues, and is awarded to the member bidding the highest premium. To secure the 1,000 borrowed, the member gives the association a mortgage on his property and pledges his five shares of stock. Some associations, when the demand for money from the shareholders does not exhaust the surplus, lend their funds to persons not shareholders, upon such terms and conditions as may be approved by their directors. Herein lies a danger, for such loans are sometimes made in a speculative way, or on insufficient land value. Some associations make stock loans, or loans on the shares held by a stockholder without real estate security, these very indifferent associations some applying the same rules as to real estate loans. To cancel his debt the stockholder is constantly paying his monthly or semi-monthly dues, until such time as these payments, plus the accumulation of profits through compound interest, mature the shares at 200 each. When he surrenders his shares, and the debt upon his property is cancelled, every member of a building and loan association must be a stockholder and the amount of interest which a member has in a building and loan association is indicated by the number of shares he holds, the age of the shares, and their maturing value. The difference between a stockholder in such an association and one in an ordinary corporation for usual business purposes lies in the fact that in the latter the member or stockholder buys his stock and pays for it at once, and as a rule is not called upon for further payment, 
All profits on such stocks are received through dividends, the value of shares depending upon the successful operation of the business. In the former the stockholder or member pays a stipulated minimum sum, say one, when he takes his membership and buys a share of stock. He continues to pay a like sum each month until the aggregate of sums paid, increased by the profits and all other sources of income, amounts to the maturing value of the stock, usually 200. When the stockholder is entitled to the full maturing value of the share and surrenders the same, shares are usually issued in series. When a second series is issued the issue of the stock of the first series ceases, profits are distributed and losses apportioned before a new series can be issued. The term during which a series is open for subscription differs, but it usually extends over three or six months, and sometimes a year. Some associations, usually known as perpetual associations, issue a new series of stock without regard to the time of maturity of previous issues. It is the practice in such associations to issue a new series of stock every year, instead of shares that are paid in installments. Some associations issue prepaid shares and paid up shares. Prepaid shares known also as partly paid up shares, are issued at a fixed price per share in advance. They usually participate as fully in the profits as the regular installment shares, and when the amount originally paid for such shares, together with the dividends accrued thereon, reaches the maturing or par value, they are disposed of in the same manner as regular installment shares. Some associations, instead of crediting all the profits made on this class of shares, Allow a fixed rate of interest on the amount paid therefore at each dividend period, which is paid in cash to the holder thereof. This interest is then deducted from the profits to which the shares are entitled, and the remainder is credited to the shares until such an paid portion of the profits, added to the amount originally paid, equals the maturing or par value. Paid up shares are issued upon the payment of the full maturity or par value. When a certificate of paid up stock is issued, the owners being entitled to receive in cash the amount of all dividends declared thereon, subject to such conditions or limitations as may be agreed upon. These shares sometimes participate as fully in the profits as the regular installment shares, but in most cases a fixed rate of interest only is allowed, the holders of the shares usually assigning to the association all right to profits above that amount. Certificates of matured shares are also issued to holders of regular installment shares who prefer to leave their money with the association as an investment. Prior to the maturing of a share it has two values, the holding or book value and the withdrawal value. The book value is ascertained by adding all the dues that have been paid to the profits that have accrued, that is to say, it is the actual value of a share at any particular time. The withdrawal value is that amount of the book value which the association is willing to pay to a shareholder who desires to sever his connection with the association before his share is matured. Some associations do not permit their members to withdraw prior to the maturing of their shares. Then the only way a shareholder can realize upon his shares is by selling them to some other person at whatever price he can obtain. There are 12 or more plans for the withdrawal of funds. Every association has full regulations on all such matters. The purchase of a share binds the shareholder to the necessity of keeping up his dues, and thus secures to him not only the benefits of a savings bank, but the benefit of constantly accruing compound interest. This accomplishes the first feature of the motive of a building and loan association. The second is accomplished by enabling a man to borrow money for building purposes. It is a moot question whether this method of obtaining money for the building of homes is more or less economical than that of obtaining it from the ordinary savings banks or from other sources. 
Sometimes the premium which must be paid to secure a loan increases the regular interest to such an amount as to make the building and loan method more expensive than the ordinary method of borrowing money, but the building and loan association has a moral influence upon its members, in that it encourages a regular payment of installments. Some associations have a fixed or established premium rate, and under such circumstances loans are awarded to the members in the order of their applications or by lot. The premium may consist of the amount which the borrower pays in excess of the legal interest, or it may consist of a certain number of payments of dues or of interest to be made in advance. There are very many plans for the payment of premiums, nearly 70 relating to real estate loans being in vogue in different associations in different parts of the United States, but in nearly all cases the borrower makes his regular payments of dues and interest until the shares pledged have reached maturing value. There is also a great variety of plans for the distribution of profits, something like 25 such plans being in existence. The methods of calculating interest and profits are somewhat complicated, but they are all found in the books to which reference will be made. The various plans for the payment of premiums, distribution of profits, and withdrawals, and the calculations under each, are given in full in the ninth Annual Report of the U.S. Commissioner of Labor. Most building and loan associations confine their operations to a small community, usually to the county in which they are situated, but some of them operate on a large scale, extending their business enterprises even beyond the borders of their own state. These national associations are ready to make loans on property anywhere, and sell their shares to any person without reference to his residence. In local associations the total amount of dues paid in by the shareholders forms the basis for the distribution of profits while in most national associations only a portion of the dues paid in by the shareholders is considered in the distribution. For instance, in a national association the dues are generally 60 cents a share per month, out of which either 8 or 10 cents are carried to an expense fund, the remainder being credited on the loan fund. The expense fund thus created is lost to the shareholders, except in the case of a few associations which carry the unexpended balances to the profit and loss account and whatever profits are made are apportioned on the amount of dues credited to the loan fund only. The creation of an expense fund in the nationals has sometimes been the source of disaster. Safety or security in both local and national associations depends principally upon the integrity with which their affairs are conducted, and not so much upon the form of organization or the method of distribution. Some of the states New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Illinois, California and others bring building and loan associations under the same general supervision of law thrown around savings banks. In some states nothing is officially known of them beyond the formalities of their incorporation. Though the business of the associations is conducted by men not trained as bankers, it yet meets with rare success. Associations disband when not successful, but when they disband great loss does not occur because the whole business of the association consists of its loans and these loans are to its own shareholders, as a rule, who hold the securities in their associated forms. The amount of money on hand is always small, because it is sold or lent as fast as paid in. A disbanded association, therefore, simply returns to its own members their own property, and but few real losses occur. Investment in a building and loan association is as nearly absolutely V.04P.0715 safe as it can be for the monthly dues and the accumulated profits, which give the actual capital of the association, are lent or sold, as it is termed, by the association as fast as they accumulate, and upon real estate or upon the stock of the association itself. The opportunities for embezzlement, 
therefore, or for shrinkage of securities, are reduced to the minimum, and an almost absolute safety of the investment is secured. The growth of these associations has been very rapid since 1840, and at the opening of the 20th century they numbered nearly 6,000. The federal government, through the Department of Labor, made an investigation of building and loan associations, and published its report in 1893. The total dues paid in uninstallment shares amounted then to area code 450-667-594. The business represented by this great sum, conducted quietly, with little or no advertising, and without the experienced banker in charge, shows that the common people, in their own ways, are quite competent to take care of their savings, especially when it was shown that but 35 of the associations then in existence met with a net loss at the end of their latest fiscal year and that this loss amounted to only a little over 23.000. Bulletin number May 10, 1897 of the U.S. Department of Labor contained a calculation of the business at that date, based upon such states' reports as were available. That calculation showed a growth in almost every item. During the years of depression ending with 1899 the growth of building and loan associations was naturally slower than in prosperous periods. See 9th Annual Report of USA Commissioner of Labor 1893, Bulletin, Munger May 10, 1897, of the Department of Labor, Edmund Riley, How to Manage Building Associations 1873, see more Dexter, A Treatise on Company Operation Savings and Loan Associations New York, 1891, Charles N. Thompson, A Treatise on Building Associations Chicago, 1892, see the or B-U-I-L-T-H Wells, a market town of Brecknockshire, Wales, Pop, a urban district 1901-1805, it has a station on the Cambrian line between Moat Lane and Brecon, and two others high and low levels at Bilth Road about 13 4 meters distant where the London and Northwestern and the Cambrian cross one another, it is pleasantly situated in the upper valley of the Wye, in a bend of the river on its right bank below the confluence of its tributary the Earthun. During the summer it is a place of considerable resort for the sake of its water saline, polybia and sulfur and it possesses the usual accessories of pump rooms, baths and a recreation ground. The scenery of the Y Valley, including a succession of rapids just above the town, also attracts many tourists. The town is an important agricultural center, its fairs for sheep and ponies in particular being well attended. The town, called in Welsh Land Fair in Wall, i.e. Street Mary's in Bilth took its name from the ancient territorial division of Dwal in which it is situated, which was, according to Nenis, an independent principality in the beginning of the 9th century, and later a cantref, corresponding to the modern hundred of Bilth, towards the end of the 11th century, when the tide of Norman invasion swept upwards along the Y Valley, the district became a lordship marsher annexed to that of Brecknock, but was again severed from it on the death of William de Brios, when his daughter Matilda brought it to her husband. Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, its castle, built probably in New March's time, or shortly after, was the most advanced outpost of the invaders in a wild part of Wales where the tendency to a revolt was always strong. It was destroyed in 1260 by Llewellyn Ab Gruffid, Prince of Wales, with the supposed connivance of Mortimer, but its site was reoccupied by the Earl of Lincoln in 1277, and a new castle at once erected. It was with the expectation that he might, with local aid, seize the castle, that Llewellyn invaded this district in December, 